Hello, women in the Word. It's good to see y'all today. It's good to be here with you. My name is Amy Foster. I love being a part of this study with all of you at all of our different campuses. So I'm wondering if any of you are like me and you enjoy the Netflix series, The Crown. Have any Crown fans here? Yeah, I love it. I mean, come on, beautiful castles and art and clothes. What's not to love about that? And maybe like me, you're learning some royal protocol as you watch that show. Here's what I've learned. Um, Everyone's behavior must change the minute they enter the queen's castle, right? Think about all those scenes where they go to see the queen. They come in by invitation only. You can't just barge in there. They're admitted through security. They're told exactly how to behave. You're going to go in and meet her in this room. You'll have this much time. You don't sit unless she asks you to sit. You don't touch her unless she touches you. And my favorite part, the minute she's done talking to you, she hits a buzzer and those security guys come in and walk you out of her presence backwards because nobody turns their back on the queen, right? She is in charge in her castle, and that is a great visual image for us. That's a sovereign leader reigning. She's the sovereign leader. In Revelation chapter two, we're gonna see something similar, but much better. We're gonna see our own king, and he is reigning in his kingdom. John is recording what is, what is presently happening. So this isn't the futuristic part of Revelation that we're talking about today. This is actually the present. And John wrote this around 95 AD. And the world at that time was in this this period of time we call the church age. And remember that began right after Jesus' resurrection when all of his followers were gathered together in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit came and filled all of them all at once. And the church age continues today. This is the time that we live in, the church age. So we're gonna be talking about our king reigning in his kingdom. So I want us to talk for just a little bit about what is a kingdom anyway. A kingdom has to have two things. It has to have a sovereign who reigns and it has to have subjects, people who submit to the king or the queen. When Jesus walked on the earth, the most common thing he said to describe why he was here was I came to bring the kingdom. He came to bring the kingdom and that's exactly what he did. He came and he made it possible for sinners to enter the kingdom of God by being the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And then he invited us all to enter that kingdom simply by believing in him and putting our faith in him. And we know we're going to be studying in the weeks ahead. There will be a future day when our great king and his kingdom of God will be fully recognized by the entire world. And on that day, every knee will bow before our king. But right now, this is his kingdom. His kingdom exists with his followers in his church, and we bow our knee to our king and we let him rule us in his church. So Jesus is writing a message here through John to the seven churches in Asia Minor. We'll put that map up on the screen. You can also see this in your notebooks. 
This area is modern-day Turkey, but it was known as Asia Minor then. And these seven churches that get a letter from Jesus, they weren't the only seven churches that existed at the time. There were many others. Some were much larger and more prominent than these. And we don't know for certain why these seven churches were singled out to receive these letters. But look at your map. One reason could be it's just geographical. They're all in Asia Minor. They're clustered together here. They're located somewhat along a, um, a circuit or a route that someone might travel. So it could be as simple as that. But each church was unique. They had their own um, characteristics. They had their own personal identity. So each letter that Jesus writes will be catered to that specific church. But in every single one of the letters, we will see characteristics that are present and real and common in our churches today. So we have to stop and remember the message to the churches are the messages intended for all churches in all places at all times. And so that includes us. We're going to look at all seven letters over the next few weeks. They share a few things in common. Every single one of these letters includes Jesus' words, I know your works. I know, Jesus sees and he's present. And all the letters end with a promise for the one who overcomes. And this is the moment when the letter really shifts and makes a promise to all the churches at all times in all places. So as we're talking about church today, Deb mentioned this last week, I think it's worth repeating. I want you to remember church does not refer to a building or a place or an institution, even though our modern churches have all of those things. When we say church, we're talking about the people, the gathered people, the assembly of people who say Jesus is our king. Church is always about the people. The first letter, is gonna be written here to the church in Ephesus. And you can see Ephesus on your map there. Ephesus was known as the gateway to Asia. And this was because it was where a major river flowed into the Aegean Sea. And it had the most significant harbor in all of Asia Minor. So that meant so much goods, um, commerce, people came through this harbor. It was also a spot with some major uh, trade routes, sort of like our interstate highways. Four of those trade routes went through Ephesus and converged there. So lots of people, lots of money, lots of commerce, all traveling through Ephesus by water and by land all the time. Ladies, it was a wealthy and a sophisticated place. It's where the famous temple of Artemis or Diana was located, one of the seven wonders of the world. It was in Ephesus. And the church that existed in Ephesus was also spiritually quite rich. And I don't mean uh, financially rich there. They had all the spiritual riches we all have because of our relationship with Jesus, but they were blessed to have some of the most outstanding leadership and teaching that any church has ever experienced. We know that Paul served there for three long years. You may remember when Paul served in Ephesus, he's preaching so much and so many people are becoming Christians that the silversmiths start a riot because they're convinced people People are going to stop buying their silver idols if Paul keeps preaching. Paul was there leading the church for three years. When Paul left, he sent Timothy in his place. He had Timothy ordained to lead this church. And then we know that John, the last living apostle, he made Ephesus his home. He oversaw all the churches in Asia Minor 
from his home and the church there in Ephesus. So they had so many wonderful spiritual advantages there. It was spiritually rich ground, and they flourished in many ways in this rich ground. Let's begin reading Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus. This is in Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary." So the message begins to the angel. Most likely, angel is a reference to the human leader of the church. Um, This would be the person who would take this scroll and open it up and stand in front of the congregation in Ephesus and read these words. And Jesus is the one sending the message. And Jesus does something very interesting in all of these letters. I want you to pay attention to this. In each one, he introduces himself. He describes himself just a little bit differently. He emphasizes a different part of his perfect character that he wants the people in the church there to remember. Here he says he's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Okay, chapter one told us that those seven stars are the angels, the messengers, the leaders of the church. So this is imagery here, so try to close your eyes maybe and imagine. It suggests divine authority and divine protection as Jesus holds the leadership of that church. He directs them and protects them. But it also suggests ownership. Jesus is holding that church in his hand because it is Jesus' church. It is his. I want to remind you of Jesus' words, Matthew 16, 18. He says, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church belongs to Jesus. He also describes himself as the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. More imagery, we have to remember from chapter one, the lampstands are the seven churches, So if you imagine that, you you have this image of Jesus constantly present, his unwearied, ongoing, never-ending activity within the church that he owns. So we see that he is omnipresent within his church. And then we get to his first, I know your works statement. And there's no need for imagery there, is there? Jesus knows. He knows everything. He knows the visible things, the activities that he can see. He knows the invisible things, the attitudes, the motivations in their hearts. He's ever-present, and he's all-knowing, and he's the owner and ruler of his church. And I think it's as if, if I could paraphrase modern vernacular, Jesus is saying, now you may have a little trouble with what I'm about to say, so before we begin, I'm going to remind you who I am. I am the Lord over this church. I own it. I sacrificed myself to create it. I am directing it. I am present in it. I am seeing everything that happens here, and I have a plan and a purpose for it. 
He says it more beautifully, but that's how I would probably say it today. He's describing his authority over the church. You know, Paul had given a similar description of Jesus' authority to the church. He'd given this to the people in Ephesus. Look at Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Now there's lots of pronouns in this verse. If you'll just grant me a little liberty here, I'm gonna replace the pronouns with the names of God and Jesus. And God put all things under Jesus' feet, and he gave Jesus his head over all things to the church, which is Jesus' body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus makes it very very clear who the message is coming from. He knows these church members. He knows how they spend their time. He knows they're active and industrious. They will labor long and hard to the point of exhaustion. And they're doing it all in Jesus' name. They're doing it all for Jesus' glory. I would put all of those things in the category of good works. They're doing good works in their city. They're making their city a better place. And they've been doing it for a really long time. The church has been president in Ephesus for about 40 years now. So good works for 40 years. Next it says they have no tolerance for evil men. So that means anyone who would pervert the truth, anyone who would entice them into evil, they've separated themselves. They've separated themselves from anything that could um, tempt them. And we can really put that in a category of moral lifestyle. So we've got good works and we've got moral lifestyle. We know, because we remember from our study in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the New Testament church was in great danger of being misled by false teachers. But here it tells us they have become very wise and spiritually discerning. They listen carefully to the teachers who show up claiming to be apostles. They know the sound doctrine that the apostles have taught. They know how to identify when someone is speaking falsehood. So we can put that in the little category of sound doctrine orthodox doctrine. So we've got good works, moral lifestyle, sound doctrine. They have disciplined their hands and their behavior and their minds. And that is all very good. But I want you to keep reading with me in verse four. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Okay, so Jesus has the right to judge what's happening in his kingdom because it's his kingdom, it's his church here. He's judging them. The fervor of their love that they used to have, it is now diminished and grown cold Jesus chooses to use the word abandoned here. In one translation, it actually says, you have abandoned me, your first love. That's a word that suggests impassioned, heart-wrenching rejection. It's, It's an emotional word that Jesus is using. He's saying, you once did have this fervent love, But we know time has passed, 40 years for many of them since the gospel came there. These are most likely second generation Christians and they've grown up with a wealth of spiritual knowledge and spiritual resources and teaching. And as a result, they're strong in their work and they're strong in their thinking and they're strong in their moral lifestyle. The church in Ephesus has all the markings of religion without relationship. 
And that's a perilous direction for them to move in, and Jesus wants them to reverse it. Their love is growing cold, and Jesus wants it to warm back up. And you know, sadly, this is just our human nature, isn't it? When we experience something wonderful, even something as wonderful as the love of Jesus, our affection will soar, but over time, remembering it day after day after day, it suddenly becomes a little familiar and it loses its wonder for us, doesn't it? You know, I have kind of a silly example of how this happens, human nature. It just happens in my family. Um, I am a baker, which means I bake all the time, and I bake really yummy things. But I have memories of my boys when they're little from time to time. (sighs) Homemade cookies again. (laughs) So how does a hot chocolate chip cookie, homemade, go from the heights of love down here to homemade cookies again. They eat them too much and they seem less wonderful. And I think that's just a silly example of what we do with all the great things that we know and experience of God. We get familiar and comfortable with them. So we have to stop and remember the greatest commandment God has for his people is love me. Love me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And when God says love me, Jesus is included in that. He is part of the Godhead. Jesus also uses some strong language to show us how much we should love him. In Matthew 10, 37, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is not saying love them less. Jesus is taking this example of your your strongest family-loving relationship that you could know. And he's saying, you know that kind of love? Love me more. Love me more than that. What we can see is that Jesus has a plan, and his plan is not to gather together a bunch of slaves who just dutifully comply with his wishes. His plan is not to gather together a bunch of mechanical people who simply do the right thing and take the next step. Jesus is gathering together people who he calls beloved. Beloved. They're people who would love him so much that good works flow from that love, that smart uh, orthodox thinking flows and overflows from love. It must begin with love or it will devolve into religion with no relationship. Jesus is the righteous judge, and so he's judging his church here, and he's finding them wanting, but he's also the gracious and merciful Savior, and so he gives them a warning, and the warning is this, keep on remembering. Your Bible says remember, but the proper tense there is really closer to keep on remembering. What are they to remember? They've fallen down. He wants them to remember the height of their early love, the fervor of their early love. And remember means take your mind back there again. Take your heart back there again. Let your affections and your love for Jesus be stirred up anew. So remember and then repent. We know that repentance is changing our mind or changing our heart. The habit of remembrance will change your heart. And then, only then, do those good works. All the good things you do that bless one another and bless the city, do those, but do them because you love me. Let them all flow from your heart of love. He's making it very clear the right heart attitude must come first, or else I will come. 
And Jesus is not talking about his second coming here. He's saying as the ruler and the owner and the director of his church, he'll step in and he will judge them swiftly for this. They're supposed to be a light of witness. They're supposed to be shining in such a way that they're attracting people to a loving God and a loving Jesus. So if they pervert the priorities here, Jesus is saying, I will take your light of witness out of that area. I'll take it out. He's a powerful judge, and he's able to do that, but he gives them this gracious warning. He goes on to give them one more little commendation here, and I almost skipped over this part. Um, It says, they hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Um, We don't know who the Nicolaitans were, but we know that God hated their works, so that meant that they were uh, perverting truth and doing evil, and so they are credited with hating the works of the Nicolaitans. And now the focus of the message shifts here, and it shifts from the specific characteristics of the church at Ephesus to everyone. Look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now I want you to humor me here, just to make a point, even if you're watching this on video, play along with us here. If you have an ear on your head, I want you to raise your hand. Just one ear, it's all you need, anywhere on your head. Look around the room. Who is Jesus talking to here? The people in Ephesus? No, Jesus is talking to all of us in all the churches at all times. You're gonna hear that over and over and over again in these letters to the churches. He who has an ear to hear, and that's when I want you to perk up and say, hey, he's talking to me. He's talking to us right here. His promise here is to all who conquer. Conquer is a familiar word that John uses a lot. We talked about it last semester. John will use the word conquer and overcome kind of synonymously, and he uses it to describe the people who have faith in Jesus. Look at 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God has overcome or conquered the world. Who is it that overcomes the world? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So that's John's universal term that he uses for all believers. So this is a promise for all believers. Jesus, as judge, will grant you a prize. You will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. We're back to imagery here, tree of life. And Deb told us last week, sometimes this imagery is like secret code. Okay, we know of what secret code is revealing here. The tree of life as we imagine it, takes our mind back to Genesis, the Garden of Eden, where they lived in perfect fellowship with God in paradise. That's the beautiful imagery here. We know that those who ate from the tree of life would never die, meaning they have eternal life. Adam and Eve lived in God's blessed presence in a perfect relationship with him, but we know the story of Genesis. Sin entered the world Humankind was cast out of the garden, out of the perfect relationship with God. And look at Genesis 3.24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So the code that we find in this imagery is the curse of sin drove us out of the presence of God and the eternal life that was available to us. So look at Jesus' promise here. To everyone who believes, I'm reversing the curse. That's what Jesus is talking about here. 
This is what we live for. This is our great hope, to live in perfect relationship with God. Judge Jesus is the one who can grant you access and entrance into that perfect relationship with God. And the way he's describing eternity here, I love it. He's really describing it as a restored, perfect relationship because relationship is always more important to Jesus than the markings of religion. So the king has commanded his people, and the command is put relationship with me first, and that's a warning for all of us today. We can't be careless with our love for Jesus. Our king has spoken. So will we bend our knee and submit to our king? He tells us the way to do it. Keep on remembering keep on remembering. So for all of us, we have to develop habits of remembrance. It's something we have to keep on doing, remembering God's love, remembering Jesus' love. Now, ladies, there are so many ways you can do this. Remember the love of Jesus. I'm going to give you just a couple examples, but don't think for a minute that these are the only two ways you can do it. The first is worship. Worship stirs up our love for God. Um, and, and don't think when I say worship, I just mean singing here in the sanctuary. That's one form of worship. But there's so many. Worship is responding to God, focusing on him, looking at his character, thinking of his identity, dwelling on who he is, and just responding to who God is. You can do that out in nature. You can do that with music. Worship is not telling God about your life. Worship is not telling God how he needs to act for you. Worship is dwelling on God. And when you dwell on him, you will be overwhelmed with his love. You will be reminded of the love of Christ that was so great it went to the cross for you. And your love for Christ in return will well up and expand inside your soul. Worship is a great habit of remembrance that will rekindle your love and warm it up. The second habit, this is one I practice often, is just the habit of gratitude. You know, James tells us every good and perfect gift is from God. Every good thing we experience in this world is because we have a good and loving God. So do we stop and notice and thank him for the good things over and over again? When you do, you're making a note. This is God's love in my life, and that only makes you love him more in return. A few weeks ago, one of my family members was injured in an accident, and as I sat in the surgery waiting room feeling a little anxious, I just took a deep breath and I thought, I'm going to list the things I'm grateful for. I'm going to list the love of God that I'm experiencing here. And I started with, thank you, God. We live in a place and a time where we can have surgery to fix our broken bodies. And we live in a remarkable time when we can get in our car and go home after the surgery and recover in our own beds. Thank you that my family member lives in this time. Thank you that they have friends and family who love them. Thank you that there's a roof over her head and electricity that will keep her house warm and comfortable. Thank you, thank you, thank you. As I made my list, my love for God and my love for Christ started welling up and warming up in me. And I remembered something. My mind quickly went back to another experience 20 years earlier, 
sitting in a children's hospital, surgery waiting room, feeling anxious while one of my young sons was having emergency surgery. And I sat in that room and dealt with my anxiety doing this same thing. Thank you, God, that we live near a children's hospital. Thank you, God, that we have insurance. Thank you, God, that our pediatrician sent us here. Thank you, God, for your love. The reason I tell you about both of those instances, it doesn't matter if you're young and immature in your faith or old and seasoned in your faith. We all need habits of remembrance. That's the instruction here, keep on remembering. So we need to regularly remind ourselves of the love of God. In great grace, the church in Ephesus got a warning from her king. I'm not sure if they heeded the warning because history tells us that over the years that followed, both the city and the church in Ephesus declined. By the 14th century, no one lived in Ephesus and there was no light for Christ shining there. What what was once the most fertile spiritual ground stopped producing fruit. Jesus' next letter goes to the church in Smyrna Smyrna was also a prominent and affluent city in Asia Minor. It was known as the crown of Asia Minor because it was particularly beautiful. It was also the the center of both commerce and development related to science and medicine. Um, The name actually comes from the word myrrh, that expensive oil that's used when you would embalm someone, that expensive oil that was the generous gift for baby Jesus from the wise men. Smyrna was also known for being intensely loyal to Rome, resulting in cults that would worship Caesar. The people would go to the cults and the temples to Caesar. They would pay their dues, their offerings. They would literally bow down and say, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And because the people were so devoted to Caesar, they would have hatred and animosity toward the Christians who refused to bow down and say anyone was Lord but Jesus. One historian wrote that in the first century, they were most noted in Smyrna for wickedness and opposition to the gospel. And yet there is a church there, a group of people shining Jesus' light in a very dark place. Begin reading with me in verse 8 letter to the church in Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So the message to Smyrna begins with a fitting description of Jesus, its author, and he describes himself as the first and the last That means he's reminding them, I'm eternal. I have always existed. I will always exist. And he also says, I'm the one who died and came back to life. And that's a reminder to these suffering Christians that Jesus also suffered and Jesus was persecuted all the way to death. But Jesus was the overcomer. He was the conqueror. He overcame death and hell and Satan and sin when he was resurrected. So it's as if he begins his uh, letter with, let me remind you, I'm the king of all time and I've already conquered everything. That would be a comforting and a fitting message to people who are experiencing persecution. 
that God knows, he sees, he's not asleep, he's not unaware, he's watching over his church, and his church is hurting. These are very succinct words here that tell us the people were afflicted and distressed. They were being pressed hard on all sides by many, many troubles. It was a dark place where they lived. They were also experiencing abject poverty. Now, we have some historical records that give us ideas about possible reasons for this poverty. We know at this time, if you were a tradesman, like a silversmith or a metal worker, you would join a guild, sort of like our unions today. And that's how you would optimize your work and your earnings. But we have records that show if you weren't worshiping Caesar, then you were banned to be a member of the guild, so you couldn't work and you couldn't earn income. We have some accounts that let us know if you didn't worship Caesar and pay tributes in those cults and in those temples, that you would be banned from buying or selling any goods or any wares in the marketplace. And then we've got other records that even show us these Christians, because they didn't worship Caesar, they were completely unprotected by the civil authorities. So they were the easiest targets for thieves and burglars. They could have all their possessions stolen and there would be no legal protection for them. They were completely vulnerable in a dark place. And in spite of all that real poverty, Jesus says, you are rich. You are rich. They fully possess all the spiritual riches that come from life with Christ. They have a relationship with God the Father because of the sacrifice of Jesus the Son. They have a life directed, fueled, supported, guided by the Holy Spirit of God. They have the fellowship and community with all the other members of the church here. They have the promise that their sins are forgiven. They have the hope of eternity with God. They're rich. They were hard pressed on every side though, and the pressure came from Gentiles, those who worship Caesar. The pressure also came from some members of the Jewish synagogue. You know, we know that when Rome conquered an area, they would come in and require all the people that were now uh, citizens of, or subjects of Rome to adjust their culture and their religion to the culture and religion of Rome. But the Jewish people somehow, I think the sovereignty of God, were given a unique and a special dispensation. They were the only ones in the Roman Empire that got this dispensation because they lived under the command of you shall have no other God besides me. They were not required to embrace the religion of Rome. They were not required to give money in the cults. So what is probably happening here is the Christians are trying to rely on the same exemption, claiming we worship the same God who says, you'll have no other gods before me. Some had Jewish ancestry, so they would try to um, claim this exemption based on their ancestry, and they would be completely denied by the Jewish synagogue, making them vulnerable to the authorities. Those things are probably happening here. But Jesus gives them a reminder. The root of that persecution, whether you're being pressed by Gentiles or Jews, the root of it is always Satan himself. Satan will always oppose the plans of Jesus and the church of Jesus. So Jesus looks at them, I think, compassionately and lovingly. He knows their condition, and he has no rebuke and no correction for this church. There's only two churches that get this kind of a message from Jesus. It's all encouragement. Verse 10 begins, do not fear what you're about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So the message is stop being afraid, even though more trouble is coming. Stop being afraid. The church was actually entering a period of persecution that was going to increase, not decrease. They would be persecuted as part of the Roman Empire until the fourth century when the Emperor Constantine miraculously converts to Christianity and Rome becomes this Christian empire. So the persecution is going to increase and Jesus lets them know he knows exactly what's coming. Some of them are about to be imprisoned. It says 10 days here. Now, we don't know for certain if that's a literal 10 days or if it's some other specific designation, but here's what does seem very clear to me. It's a limited period of time. Jesus has constrained the evil that is going to torment them. And in this quick, brief section, we really see some great lessons about persecution and also about suffering. The first thing we see, that persecution and suffering, it falls under Christ's sovereign rule. He's in control, and he's reigning, and he has constrained and put limits on this suffering. What Satan is doing to them Jesus has put limits on it. So we see his control there. We also see that Satan has a purpose for the difficulties, the tests that we experience, but Jesus has a counter purpose. Satan wants this to be a test to completely defeat and discourage and destroy the believer, perhaps diminishing their faith in God. But Jesus wants this to be a test that matures and grows and strengthens the believer and the church. Look at James 1-2 on your verse sheet. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Look also at Romans 5-3. Paul writes this while he's in prison. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Jesus has a good purpose for tribulation and suffering. I want to share a visual example with you. Um, you're all familiar with pottery, dishes, bowls, and plates. And like me, you probably think when a piece of pottery gets cracked, it's useless, it's worthless, Maybe you throw it away or put it in the back of your cabinet. There's a Japanese art form called kintsugi pottery. And kintsugi means the art of scars. And it means when their pottery gets cracked, they don't throw it away. They fill the cracks with gold. And they turn what we thought was worthless into this beautiful piece of art. Look at that result. So take a look at a couple of those and then just bear with me as we look at this pottery. I want you to know when your life is cracked open by tribulation, Satan wants it to defeat and destroy you, but Jesus wants all those cracks filled with steadfastness and endurance and maturing faith and great hope. Jesus wants to use those scars to turn you into a beautiful masterpiece. Jesus allows persecution because he's making his church beautiful. That's what he's doing. He is in control in Smyrna. He's in control today. 
They are experiencing tribulation and Jesus is going to do something redemptive in their suffering. So he tells the church, the struggling church, stop being afraid, replace your fear with faith. Thank you for those slides. The message is be faithful no matter what happens to you, no matter if they put you in prison, no matter if they hurt you, be faithful because Jesus is granting you the crown of life. This is a little bit more imagery here. It's not a literal crown here. He wants you to picture the wreath that would be awarded to the champion athlete or maybe the garland that the military victor would wear in a parade. It's the mark of the conqueror. And Jesus, King Jesus, is the one who can award that mark because he is the one who's earned it. He already earned it, and he's promising it to his followers. The final reward for Jesus' faithful church is better than a crown. It's eternal life, and Satan can't touch it. He can do all kinds of things to our bodies, but he can't touch our eternal life. So the message is be committed, be unwavering, be loyal to King Jesus. And then he expands that message to everyone with an ear. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So that takes a, a little explanation, doesn't it? When our heart stops beating and our lungs start breathing, our bodies die, that's the first death. Um, but we all have a soul, and our soul is eternal. In the weeks ahead, we're going to get to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to see this experience where every single person who hasn't put their faith in Jesus, they're going to stand before Jesus on his great white throne, and they are going to receive what they deserve for abandoning Jesus. They're going to be um, cut off from the goodness of God, the presence of God, the blessing of God forever. And that is what's being referred to here as the second death. It is judgment for unbelief. So the persecuted Christian, the struggling, the suffering Christian can take comfort. Satan might be able to hurt your body, but he cannot harm your eternal experience with your king. Now, we don't really experience spiritual persecution in the United States, not like our brothers and sisters have experienced all over the world, but we do experience trials and we experience tribulation, and Satan does try to test us in very destructive ways. And so the message we have from our king is choose faith over fear. Choose faith over fear. How do we bend our knee and do this? What I learned from these letters, it's only possible to choose faith over fear when I value the victory that Jesus has won for me more than anything else. When I see my life the way Jesus sees it, and that's with an eternal perspective. If you imagine your life as a timeline, the timeline extends forever because you're eternal and you're going to spend eternity worshiping God in his presence forever. There's no end to your timeline. So all the things that are happening to you right now are one small section on a big, long line. All the good things, the career accomplishments, the babies, the marriages, they're little dots on the small section of that line. And all the hurtful things that happen to you, the illnesses, the harm from other people, they're little dots on one small section of that line. We have to discipline ourselves to know the difference between the dots and the long line, and we have to live for the line. 
That's how we look at our lives the way Jesus does. That's the only way we live by faith. Otherwise, we are a bundle of fears so focused on all those little dots, trying to control all those little dots. We know that Satan and the gates of hell will try to defeat us, will try to destroy the church. But ladies, if we look at it the way Jesus looks at it, Satan's best efforts are little dots on a tiny section of that line. Jesus knows the end of the story. He knows the distant, far part of the line that we can't see. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus uses all the dots, good and bad, to shape us for eternity. So our encouragement is that we live today in Jesus' kingdom. In his church, we're in his kingdom, and we are privileged to bend our knees and serve our king. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your love for us that sent a king to save us. We thank you for putting us all together in your kingdom right here and now. So we pray that our love would not grow cold, that all of our good work for you would flow from hearts that are devoted to you, that we would patiently endure with eyes that look to the future. We are grateful to know we are spending eternity with you. Thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.